1: Like, you know, bro, bro.
0: What is going on, Sports fam? Yes, we are back at your favorite history teacher, Mr. Parker Andrews, with another edition of FN Sports, the podcast where teachers grade sports biggest issues. And we're coming to you after a couple weeks of what we're calling summer vacation. (laughs) There were no live episodes the last couple weeks of FN Sports, but there were plenty of live sports happening. So we have some stuff to recap. Now... I'm a teacher, so I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but when I was in school, the quickest way to recap things was typically a source we called uh, SparkNotes. I think the kids now probably use SparkNotes.com. However, they're doing that behind our backs. We're going to be out in the open with this. We're going to talk about SparkNotes, the last couple weeks of sports. We're going to do a couple minutes quickly on a bunch of different big sports topics that happened over the last two weeks. So without further ado, let's dive on in. So right before we went on vacation, the NBA finals wrapped up that Thursday night. Now, we did record a full Belly Up Basketball post-game show with Thomas and I, and we I went ahead and put that in the feed so you can go back and check that out for full immediate post-game reactions, if you would like. But the thing I think that was a really big conversation piece for the Spark Notes bit here is the conversation very quickly shifted to what does that tell us about Steph Curry? Steph Curry had the Game 4 and 6 that I think so many people wanted to see from him in all of their other Finals appearances previously. That's not to say that he had not had a couple of games throughout his previous NBA Finals, like Game 5 in 2015, or Game 6 and Game 5 and 6 I should say, in the 2019 Finals that they lost. That He'd had moments like that throughout his, sporadically, throughout his time in the NBA Finals, but he had them in a Finals that they won when they had to have them. I mean, quite frankly, if he doesn't have that game in Game 4, doesn't go Go off like that the way he does in Boston in Game Four. They're down three-one, right? They they have come back from that in the past. It's the famous 2016 story. They come back from that in the Western Conference Finals when they lose like that in the NBA Finals, but it's not quite the same. Anyway, people have talked about the Steph Curry thing for a long time. The spark note here is that people are now saying, well, does that move Steph Curry into your top ten all the time? Does it move him into your top five all the time? Then top 15 all the time. Where's that place him? We did a whole episode, a few episodes back on his placement going into the finals and those kinds of tiers and lists and sorts. I think this probably squaresly does put him between like the eight and 12 or 13 markers somewhere in there, as far as personal accomplishments go. I have to say though, that had he had those same performances in another finals loss, would he potentially be bumped back in your list? If you're putting him in the top 10 of your list, if you got him at sitting there at number eight, and he were to have the exact same finals performances in a loss, but individual performances were exactly the same, but like Jason Tatum also decided to like actually shoot layups and the Celtics went on to win, Would he be bumped a bunch backwards in your list? And that's when I kind of kind of ask what the deal is. Like, if this is a list of individual accomplishments, I don't know how many more individual things Steph Curry has to accomplish. Especially when like the knocks—if you want to put air quotes around the phrase "knocks" on him—were things like playing with Kevin Durant for two of his NBA championships. Like that doesn't change. The, the thing is people are using this revision. like, well, now he's done that. so that, No, no. Two of his championships were still played with a guy like Kevin Durant alongside him. You don't like go back and redo that now that something else has happened. Something else has happened. We add it to the story, but you don't lose those two championships, one with Kevin Durant along your side. You don't sh- suddenly shift those because Kevin Durant got bounced and swept in the first round of this year's playoffs and then Steph Curry wins. At the end of the day, Draymond said as much in the post-game podcasting tour of sorts he went on they needed Kevin Durant to win those two championships they call me a Rockets fan and a homer and so on they don't beat the 2018 Rockets without Kevin Durant you can look at the way that they swept the Cavs in the 2018 finals and be like well since they swept they obviously But A, we remember like 2018 finals, game one, LeBron is one of the best performances I've ever seen in, the, in my entire life. He had 50 points and went to overtime and J.R. Smith cost him the game and so on and so forth, right? They also needed Durant down the stretch of several of those games. That's what I like to call a close sweep, kind of like the Nets and Celtics this year was a close sweep where you look at like, yes, it was four games. Yes, it was a short series, but each of the games was super deluxe close. And it frankly was like less than 20 points in the Celtics Nets series from being a sweep the other direction, right? Like those kinds of sweeps also happen. Durant, Push them over the edge in that series in a way that yes they double Steph Curry at three point line they also double Dame Lillard at three point line double James Harden at three point line they double Tyrese Maxey in the right game at the three point line right that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to have other players around you that it's not as much as Steph Curry Warriors fans and stuff will say like this is different the gravity like they've always doubled the best player on the other team, or the hot hand on the other team, at various points on the floor, Durant was vital to, you're going to double Curry, now Durant's going to give you 40. Because he was able to do that. The knock on Curry has not been that he wanted a double team at times when got hot, or that he's a generational talent, or anything like that. Again, I had him in the top 15 before the finals even started on my all-time player tiers and so on. The issue with Steph Curry, the knock on Steph Curry, was that in those final series, when they needed 40, they went to Durant. When they said, hey, we got to come down here and get a bucket. We need an isolation basket. They're stopping everything. They're switching. It's late in the shot clock. We got to go to someone for an iso basket. They went to Kevin Durant. And they did. That's, that's just what they did. And and I don't know that like people want to hear that, but you can't undo the fact that they did that. That's just now part of the story and frankly the knock against curry was also that outside of one game of the 2015 finals the warriors didn't go to him in those situations then either they just continue to run all the switching sets and get draymond on the back cut flipping the ball to iguodala for dunk or kicking out to to clay thompson off down screen the hammer side like all kinds of different things happen and they were hyper efficient offense but that doesn't mean that they went to Curry for an ISO at any point. And so I don't know that those knocks go away. I think he's still in that 8-12 to 12 or 13 range. Like I said, I, I can't knock the two games he had. He had two tremendous games in the NBA Finals. And frankly, you can't take that away from the guy. I'm not trying to take that away from the guy. I'm just saying that that series very easily could have gone the other way had, even with Steph Curry's performances, had, like, Jason Tatum just played better than Celtics, not turned the ball over as much, or whatever. And... If they go the other way, I don't think Steph Curry would have moved in the list. He still had those two games. Like, I I think that that's why I'm failing to understand, like, how people are using this to go back in time and erase his previous accomplishments or things that, you know, people might have dinged him for in 2017 and 2018, but also how it, like, like just catapults him past. I, there's all kinds of issues I have with all that. Anyway, that's the spark note on that one. All right, and sticking with basketball, the other... Big piece of news the last couple weeks has been a handful of fairly large, sizable trades, all-star or all-star adjacent type of players going to teams that I think are trying to win right now. The first of which chronologically was Christian Wood going to Dallas Mavericks. And I see people saying, Oh, Parker, Christian Wood's not an all-star. He's all-star adjacent, and that his statistics actually bear out fairly similar. But I think the bigger deal here is that Dallas went all in on Wood in a move that looked a lot different with Jalen Brunson. On their roster, the Dallas Mavericks just went to Western Conference Finals. Jalen Brunson was a big part of that because Luka Doncic was hurt early in the playoffs. Brunson carrying the load. You also saw the the, my turn, your turn between Brunson and Doncic with the various sets. Frankly, going right at a guy we're going to talk about in a minute named Rudy Gobert, and those kinds of things happened for sure. I think the thing that Wood does for Dallas is raise their offensive ceiling. And I don't say that someone like, frankly, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm not the biggest Wood fan as a Houston Rocket. He is a very isolation heavy player at times. I'll just say it. He looks selfish in Houston. I think what Dallas is hoping is that some of those like selfish tendencies fade their way out when you're playing for something. Because bluntly in Houston, he was playing in the middle of a rebuild and Houston was not concerned with winning basketball games the last two years. And I don't think they're going to be this year either. The Wimbayana sweepstakes is very real. But what I will say is that if you're hoping Wood plays better or plays more selflessly in a win now situation, that his ability to create will not become a selfless idea, but a way to take the pressure off of Doncic. I've always said, I think Christian Wood's best role, and the one he has brought into Houston to do, frankly, is to play off of creators. When Houston acquired him, he was supposed to be paired with Russell Westbrook and James Harden and be this third option, a three-level roller off of the screen that could still space the floor as a big, so Russell Westbrook could do his microball basketball thing like he was doing in Houston. Obviously, all of Houston implodes within two months of him being there, and none of that happens. He and Russell Westbrook don't ever share the floor together in Houston, and Harden only gets to play with him for about a month. But I do think that his three-level rolling, that means he can pop away to three, he can roll the mid-range and isolate from there, or he can go straight to the basket and catch a lob for rim because he's 6'10", long arms. I think those are all good aspects of the way he fits with Luka Doncic. I think that that pairs very, very well. I think you're going to see a lot of fun offense out of that if I'm Dallas my big concern here is that I have yet to see Christian Wood do a solid job of defending the rim as a backside help guy I would even argue sometimes he got bullied by heavier stronger post players because he's kind of thin I wonder if we're going to look at this in hindsight when basketball continues to evolve in like five or six years and see Wood having been more of a like slightly slow-footed wing player that's just a little bit taller and you know what does that make us think about like do we rely on him as a Rim protector, if we think of him as more like a small forward, that's just not so small. He just, I, I don't know if that's going to be a more fair assessment of his defense, but he's a little bit slow of foot to play the three or the four out on the floor as a perimeter guy but he also doesn't defend the rim well enough, or at least didn't put his body out there to do it in Houston. Again, if you're thinking that playing for something means he'd more, he didn't do it a lot in Houston to make me think that he's going to do that well in Dallas. Either, I also think though that there's some secret sauce here with Jason Kidd's defensive systems. Jason Kidd turned that team to a very solid defensive team in his first year as head coach. And so maybe Kidd does something in scheme or something I'm not predicting because he's done that very well in the past. And say what you want to say about Dallas and Kidd, and that whole organization, but he did flip that defense around, and their offense relied a lot on Luka and my turn your turn type drives, and they had the most success in the playoffs, when they went five out and did it. Wood opens up all of that offensive stuff, and if they think they can flip him into something better defensively, they're going to be really, really good, even without Jalen Brunson. They're going to be very, very good. The next big NBA trade chronologically was Jeremy Grant, a similar type of player, it feels like, uh, probably a little bit more bounce and wiggle than Wood, but probably not quite as good a shooter as Wood in Jeremy Grant going to Portland. I have to say that I like this move initially in him going to Portland. I think it signaled some like rebuilding around Dame Lillard in a win now type of move for Portland that I really, really liked. However, they haven't followed up with it in the way I would have liked. So he and dame lillard pair very well together on offense in that again it's this like screen roll action except you have to force some sort of a switch on it and we've seen dame lillard kill switches because the kind of guy you're going to put on jeremy grant is not the kind of guy you want to also put on dame lillard You need a little bit thicker bigger stronger body on grant because he's a bigger more muscular guy and we've seen dame lillard exploit those matchups throughout his career at this point point. and vice versa if you put the smaller guy in a switch on jeremy grant we've seen him punish guys or blow by guys in the back door and, and so i think that those kinds of things make sense to me as well it's just not the kind of move that just like launches them over the top and i say that mostly because we've seen what dame lillard looks like with like one other star and Yes, they they did, you know, end up on the opposite side of the bracket from the Warriors and get the Western Conference Finals in 2019. However, they also got swept by the Kevin Durantless Warriors in 2019. Like, like, I think that when we look at this, we also have to remember that, like, some of that was just based on where they were in the brackets. We otherwise have seen, you know, Dane Lillard in the bubble was fun, but they didn't go very far, right? And that's with CJ McCollum alongside. So I, I think that Obviously, he's a different type of player and opens up a little bit different part of the playbook and offense than C.J. McCollum would offer. But with just adding Jeremy Grant and using the number seven pick on a rookie, regardless of what you think about Shaden Sharp and this, like, did he go to Kentucky? Did he not go to Kentucky? Did he kind of go to Kentucky? Whatever you want to qualify him as is not really the win now type of move I would have thought the Blazers were going to continue to make after making this trade for Jeremy Grant. I thought they were gonna to try to trade the pick with someone. I thought they were gonna try and pull someone in with it or frankly get a more traditional role player, right? Someone like, you know, obviously Keegan Murray wasn't available but some sort of a, a guy that can just like come in right away and catch and shoot. They didn't do that either. And I just don't know that I feel very positive about where Portland is going. Similarly, DeJounte Murray got traded to Atlanta for a handful of picks and things like that, and I guess they technically got Danilo in San Antonio, but then they bought him out. Anyway, DeJounte Murray being in Atlanta is the big part of the story, and I look at that and I say, like, huh, did Atlanta get better? Absolutely. DeJounte Murray is a guy that has played at all-star level. He's another guard put in the backcourt alongside Trey Young. He's roughly the same age as you. I guess they're both the same age bracket, I should say, he and Trey Young. They both I think pair very well together because you have to cover both of them for extensive parts of the floor. Trey Young obviously got to cover out like a 35 feet, but Dejounte Murray is also fairly effective inside of 30 feet, and so you got to cover them at all angles. It changes what your defense does. It also, frankly, will take off some of the wear down we saw Trey Young over the course of the season. I think that's all fine and good. I again though worried that if you have guys that are all of six feet tall and six foot four in your backcourt. What are you going to do when you come across some of these bigger guards in the West? Like, when you line up against Boston, if you're Atlanta, who covers Tatum? Because I imagine you put Trey Young on Marcus Smart, but you probably don't want to do that because he'll back him down in the post because I've seen Marcus Smart do that, so you probably put DeJounte Murray on. Like, all of a sudden, you've got these matchup problems because you have a very small combined backwards you have two true point guards playing in the backcourt and that means that you have two smaller guys and the league is slowly heading to where no one has guys on the floor under six foot five anymore that's as positionless basketball continues to evolve you're having less and less teams with guys that are under six foot four. I did see at the NBA Combine the average height for a starting point guard is still six two and change. I think something like fifteen teams in the league started the season with a point guard that was six three or under. I'm not saying they'll do that against everyone. But it does feel like the best teams don't do that anymore. And they've got two guys in that rough height range. And I just, I wonder how they're going to continue to do that if they get beat up in that way. Offensively, they could score 1,000. I just worry they're also going to give up 1,000, especially if it looks like they may be trying to move John Collins. Can they keep Bogdanovich? What what are they going to do with their roster the rest of the way to make themselves better defensively to keep up with their offensive growth? I guess part of this has to do with, do you think the Eastern Conference finalist Atlanta Hawks are the real deal or do you think that what we saw last year then was more the real deal The truth is it's probably somewhere in the middle I think this makes them better but I don't think it like raises their ceiling a whole lot and so I'm just kind of in the middle on this trade But the big NBA trade as of recording this because there's potentially a bigger one coming frankly, in the next couple of hours, we will see. The big NBA trade at the recording of this is Rudy Gobert heading to Minnesota for a lot of NBA draft picks, Patrick Beverly, and the first overall pick for Minnesota this year, Walker Kessler. Now, I have to say, I understand everything Utah did in this, and it feels like Danny Ainge is fleecing the league yet again. He did it when he was in Boston and they fleeced Brooklyn for Paul Pierce and Garnett. I feel like it's happening all over again, and I am a little bit frustrated that people continue to do this with Danny Ainge. However, it weirdly appears like Danny Ainge will be continuing to do the deal where he builds for the future without losing the present. Tony Jones, The Athletic, reports that does not look like Donovan Mitchell is going to be moved this summer. They're trying to retool and rebuild around him now that they have a bunch of assets to do so. All those trade picks and young guys and Patrick Beverly and so on are really being brought in, it feels like, to be very quickly sent back out for something, someone, or more to pair with Donovan Mitchell, someone he is perhaps more agreeable with, or maybe just more than one guy. Rudy Gobert is a great defensive floor raiser, so as we transition to talking with his fit in Minnesota, I think it's worth pointing out that on defense, you will not have worse than like a 12th ranked defense in the NBA if you have Rudy Gobert on your team. I mean, you could throw out four complete scrubs on defense, and Rudy Gobert will make sure you are in a top 12 type of position on defense defense. My worry with him has always been he has a very clear cut ceiling. and I don't mean to say in the playoffs because that seems very cliche, but what does happen in the playoffs is people will game plan for you over the course of a seven game series in a way that they don't in the regular season. So when you see Rudy Gobert out there having trouble covering both Maxi Kleba in the corner and Jalen Brunson driving the basket at the same time, it's because they're exploiting a weakness of his. They put the guy that he's covering in the corner and he has trouble going from that opposite dunker spot, the help side from the corner, and defending. The one side of the rim, as well as getting out to the corner. The Houston Rockets did this to him. The Golden State Warriors did this to him. To some degree, honestly, as weird well as it feels, the Minnesota Timberwolves also did this to him. So why are they trading for this guy? I will say that it's worth pointing out, outside of Minnesota, that one season that Jimmy Butler, outside of that Minnesota team, I'm talking about teams that get to the Western Conference Finals. Like, I'm talking about elite-level basketball teams that do this to him, and so it's like, okay, if that's the ceiling, maybe we have something else that punctures that glass ceiling, like Crown Towns, like the growth of Anthony Edwards or whatever, but there is a clear-cut issue there where he has trouble doing that. He also has to play drop. He can't come out and defend the perimeter on switches. I, there's a whole clip that Will stand from Houston, the great Houston Rocket Twitter account, at Biased Houston tweeted that Jalen Green is just torching him. A rookie 20-year-old Jalen Green is torching him from the outside because he can't play in the drop against Jalen Green, right? Like those things really do happen. They really are issues with him, even if he is a three-time defense player of the year. <laughs> what I don't get about Minnesota trading for him is that now either he or Kyle Anthony Towns will always have to cover someone on the perimeter whenever they run any kind of a man defense because to have them both out there which you're paying them both max value so I assume you want to one of them will have to guard the other teams forward they can't both get stuck on the other team's center and I use air quotes around center because sometimes the guy is bluntly Russell Westbrook right like sometimes the Jazz would put Rudy on Russell Westbrook because he wasn't going to shoot anything except for at the rim, and so he could kind of help from further over than the dunker spot or, or whatever. I understand that. But at the end of the day, I also feel like you've got two large seven-footers that have trouble covering people on the perimeter and now one of them has to cover someone on the perimeter and i don't mean like they just haven't done it before i mean i have ample evidence through rudy gobert's nine years in the nba and Carlton Towns' seven years in the nba that they have trouble doing it at a high level. Meanwhile, offensively, Rudy Gobert does not create for himself. Rudy Gobert does not take guys off the dribble. Rudy, goes not, Rudy Gobert does not put his back on people. Rudy Gobert does not face up on guys in the post. Rudy Gobert does not use his length for any sort of his own creation. His creation on offense is all screen and roll, screen and roll, screen and roll. And Jazz fans will tell you endlessly about how many screen assists he gets, whether it's him rolling and penetrating, puncturing the defense and then they get a kick out or whatever. And I'm sure that will happen some in Minnesota too. Again, his floor raises teams very, very high. The Jazz have been a good, albeit not great, team for basically the whole time he's been there. But when I look at what he does on offense, it's all catching lobs, it's all getting putbacks off of that screen and roll action. So that means he's going to be occupying some spot in the lane or be rolling straight to the rim because he's not going to do stuff in the mid post. That means that that space that Anthony Edwards dominated so much, and part of the reason that Anthony Edwards fits so well with Carl Anthony Towns is because he took up that space while Towns spaced the floor as a three-point shooter, that's now occupied. And so Anthony Edwards is a great shooter in his own right. I just don't think that you want to limit what Anthony Edwards does, this great going-into-his-third-year talent that you got, frankly, as a reward for being awful a couple of years ago and getting them one overall pick, you are now putting a guy where he's in the way of that happening. And if that's in the way, I don't think that Anthony Edwards is also maximized. And if you're not maximizing your own homegrown talent, why are you pulling in Rudy Gobert from a, you know, a nine year vet, 31 year old guy, whatever. And even if you think it's an experiment worth going farther on, it feels like an experiment nonetheless. And as an experiment, why are you mortgaging your draft picks until 2029? If there is no change in the NBA's one-and-done rule, the kid you're giving up drafting, the top five picks or whatever in 2029 potentially, is a kid that is currently going into the seventh grade. Like, this thing is going on forever, and we just saw how poorly this worked out for Brooklyn right? Brooklyn traded all these draft picks for James Harden. They got him for all of like 14 months, right? This isn't necessarily a shot at the idea of experimenting, because experimenting is worthwhile to do, because it's always a way to see like, are we going to make this team better or not? I get that. I have questions. I don't know that I would have done it. But at the end of the day, I get why if you're Minnesota, you're thinking we need something to take the leap. We know this guy will raise our floor to a certain level. And that's great. That's fine. That's dandy. But it's an experiment nonetheless. And you're giving up an awful lot to do this experiment and I don't know that this is the like could you have gone out and gotten DeAndre Ayton cheaper and would it not do a lot of the same things I, I don't know I think that that's why I sit on that trade and again as I said here recording that is the biggest trade thus far and I'm just not sure that Minnesota got better at the end of the day on it and I just don't see why they did it but Danny Ainge is his magic and so here we are. Speaking of Anthony Edwards, we can talk about the Charlotte Hornets for a second because they famously took LaMelo Ball, the rookie of the year from that draft class. Uh, the Charlotte Hornets are gonna hold out a whole lot of flack at the end of this podcast episode for frankly some other things they did much, much worse. But what I will say is we're gonna give them a little bit of flack here because of the way they handled their entire coaching search. At first, they announced they're gonna hire Kenny Atkinson, and then Kenny Atkinson as an assistant for the Golden State Warriors won the NBA Finals. He and the Warriors had some talks, and suddenly, they're not hiring Kenny Atkinson. i have say there's feels like something kind of sketchy happening there. Uh, Steve Kerr is only 56 years old, I guess, but, like, why would you return to be an assistant when you could get paid a lot more to be a head coach? You have this team with LaMelo Ball and the bright future and working in North Carolina, which is a great basketball state and culture and all those kinds of things. I get that, like, the Hornets themselves don't have a great culture. They haven't done a whole lot of winning, but theoretically, there's a lot of great basketball fans in the state i don't know it just feels kind of sketchy and odd to me what i will say is that i would look at like what do the warriors continue to look like over the next couple years that Atkinson just won a different head coaching job or he's really all in on what they're doing in golden state meanwhile the bigger detentionable type of thing or the spark note here is that the hornets went back to steve clifford like, what are they doing there? <laughs> they they go back to a coach that had just previously coached them in the Kimball Walker days. To I, I just I don't get what's happening. I don't get why you go back to an old breakup. I, I don't see why that's working in the Hornets' favor. It seems fairly desperate, frankly. And I understand that, like, Jordan and D'Antoni did not get along very well. And so that's why they couldn't pull in D'Antoni, even though he was kind of a finalist, depending on which way you read which story. It just no matter how you break it, it feels like getting back with an X, and I don't think that that's the best way to go about your coaching search. Also, while we were gone, there was almost an entire championship series played out. <laughs> Did you guys know about hockey? Hockey's really fun, man, I, I gotta say. <laughs> I'm laughing because I did never think I'd get here where I'm talking this way about hockey, but hockey was a ton of fun. We had some ideas for people to come on and talk about hockey and those kind of things, and we may do that over the course of the summer to talk about what exactly the Colorado Avalanche did. However, there's a ton of fun. It's a really fun series to watch and be a part of because I was in Denver for game three and four. Now, I know game three and four were being played, obviously, in Tampa Bay, but being in Denver and going to those kinds of sports bars along the time we're on a road trip across the country back and forth was a lot of fun. I'd say... When I was in Colorado for Game 3, I was in a sports bar in Denver, and the deflation across the entire sports bar was wild. That's the game, obviously, that Tampa won very very big. It was like 6-1, to and I have to say that everyone in the sports bar in Denver was like, Oh, man, the Dynasty's back. They're doing it again, because Tampa had just done that to New York, right? And so it felt like, oh, God... This, whatever Denver tells you now, I can tell you right now the sentiment in downtown—I say downtown—it's really River North district of Denver—was very much like, "Oh God, here it goes again." Now, with that said, Colorado is not a surprising champion by any stretch. They were top of the West all year. They had 119 points, 66 wins. Uh, they had 312, which is most goals in Western Conference. They also allowed the second fewest goals in Western Conference. Mika Rantanen scored 92 points at the top 15 in the NHL. They had three other guys also in the top 20 in the NHL in points across the board. I think that's obviously very, very strong because most teams had, like, most good teams had two. They had four. They were a tremendous team all season long. The tension that night of game 3 was very real, but the elation in game 4 when it felt like they'd won the series even though they were up 3 to 1 felt very, very real as well. There was a big letdown, I'm sure, when game 5 came to town. I was out of Denver at that point, but it sounds like game 5 came back to a big letdown on Toronto and win in game 6. Call this an amateur hockey opinion, but it did feel like the overtime of game 4 was the big shift. Tampa Bay gave all they had in Game 5 to win the road with their back into the wall. But Game 4's overtime did feel like the last punch and that the ending was just this inevitability. Uh, even down the wire, the very end of Game 6, it just felt like Tampa Bay was doing all they could but had run out of steam and the ending was going to eventually happen that way anyway. That's not to say that they were not this, like, dynastic type of team, right? Tampa Bay has won two in a row going into this year. Uh, it still has Stamco. It still had. Kucherov they still had Vasilevsky they still have all of this talent across the board it's not like that they just suddenly changed overnight and were no longer the favorites even if they were the slightly lower seed I just feel like we'd seen Tampa do those things and so that's why that game three felt so like challenging in denver i was like oh man they're really going to do this again because they did that to the rangers they beat a high scoring team in florida frankly to open up the playoff series i feel like that comparison also was in the back of the heads of the people that i was with in a sports bar in denver i say the people i was with it was the whole sports bar but that's neither here nor there um fun fun series i'm not saying that i can watch hockey at all in the way i watch basketball because frankly they are happening at roughly the exactly the same time but i will say that it's a fun sport it was a fun series and the nhl playoffs continue to be fun because of the do or die moments these overtimes where first goal wins and all those kinds like Go, game four's overtime was a ton of fun. Like That's hard to replicate in basketball. I'd argue that the average basketball game is a little more fun for other reasons, but that's nothing thing right over there. Chess Colorado Avalanche. It was a fun, fun series. We may get to talk more about hockey over the course of the summer. Shout out to the Belly Up Hockey crew. They're doing a big, big draft show special, so make sure you log on to all the Belly Up Hockey channels across social media to find out more information on that. Make sure you log on and watch that on YouTube. They'll be going live to talk about the NHL draft, so shout out to them and all the work they're doing on that. Make sure you go check that out if you're a hockey fan. As well. Speaking of the fall from dynasties, we had a great retire in the time I was away. Rob Gronkowski officially announced another retirement? Uh, Question mark. Uh, Let's hope he's actually really retired this time. I don't mean that because I don't enjoy watching him play football. I frankly really do enjoy watching him play football. But Gronk's body took a beating over the course of his 11 years in the NFL. Uh, Frankly, you can go back to his time before the NFL and talk about his extensive timeout at Arizona with a big back injury. Uh, he had an ankle injury in 2011 that he played on but might have cost them the Super Bowl if he'd been healthy. Maybe he catches that Hail Mary at the end. Uh, he has an arm injury that takes him out of the 2012 playoffs, an ACL-MCL injury in 2013, another injury in 2015, another backer injury in 2016. Uh, he said all these different things that led to him eventually retiring earlier from the Patriots, saying his body was just worn out. He was dealing with a lot of pain, and he couldn't get up for playing football anymore because... Of that pain, he obviously then heals his body over some time away, comes back to Buccaneers, has a great time with Buddy Tom, wins in the Super Bowl, and frankly, made a decent run at trying to win a second one. Obviously, they came up a little short. But I digress. He goes down as undoubtedly as I see it, the best tight end in the history of football because he not only played tight end as well as anyone's ever played it before, he shifted and altered what we think of the tight end position to be. He took the Jimmy Graham, Tony Gonzalez, even as far back as Shannon Sharp type of model, Jeremy Shockey, I guess, to some extent, but this idea that a tight end could be a true receiving threat, not just a, like, occasional dump-off kind of guy, he took that and ran with it. I mean, statistically speaking, across the board, he's got uh, the most touchdown catches in Patriots history as a tight end. He has the most of any position as a tight end. Uh, He has the most games with multiple receiving touchdowns in Patriots history, again, as a tight end, he's beating receivers and running backs and these other pass catchers at that. He's got the most 100-yard receiving games by tight end ever. Uh, he's got the most touchdown catches in the first two seasons of any position. Uh, he's tied with Randy Moss for that. So like, think about like how great Randy Moss was as a receiver. He's in the record books alongside Randy Moss in the same categories, playing tight end. He was the first tight end to lead the league in touchdown receptions. He was the youngest player to catch three touchdowns in a game. He was 21 years old when he did that against the Steelers. He's also the youngest player to ever catch three touchdowns in a playoff game. He was 22 years old against the Denver Broncos when he did that. Uh, he's just across the board, all over the record, broke His fingerprints are all over what the tight end position is becoming, not just because he's a giant freak of nature that like, you can't cover, but because it opened up the way they used him in New England, opened up what we now consider to be tight ends without Guys like Rob Gronkowski, you don't have guys like Darren Waller, right? Like, you don't get the continual growth of the position. Even Travis Kelsey, who played you know, in the league for a lot of the same time, you don't have if you don't have a Rob Gronkowski because it opens up what people think of the position as in a copycat league especially. When the NFL turned 100, I think it was just a year or two ago, they didn't pick starters and subs and this team versus that team, but they did name an all-time 100th anniversary team, and he was one of the five tight ends to make said team. I have to say that he's, in my mind, the starter, regardless of who else is on the team. I think he's the greatest tight end to ever play the game, but he doesn't get remembered for that. He gets remembered for the Spikes, the fun celebrations, the Rob Gronkowski funhouse in the summertime, all of the other crazy nonsense, and frankly... If you want to know how great Rob Gronkowski is, he's famous for all of those things, and Belichick put up with him for nine years. That's all you need to know in my book. <laughs> Rob Gronkowski, greatest tight end of all time, retiring again. Hope it's for good because man, he seriously does look beat up out there. shout out to Rob Gronkowski, great career, greatest tight end of all time. In other football news, is Texas back? Texas lands number one overall recruit in the class of 2023. Arch Manning. Arch is only the seventh player to ever get a perfect rival score on their recruits. They've only done this to seven players. He will be the third quarterback. And I have to say now that Quinn Ewers is at Texas, all three quarterbacks have come through Texas. That's Vince Young, Quinn Ewers, and Arch Manning. Other guys that have gotten the perfect 1.0 score have been Van Clowney, Robert nimkin uh, Rashawn Gary, a handful of guys that maybe didn't turn out to be the pros, much like Finch Young, that you wanted them to be. Although I would go back and argue the Finch Young thing just for a second. He was Rookie of the Year, had some other stuff going on mentally. I I digress. The perfect rival score has consistently yielded top-tier college football talent. And again, Finch Young being the last time Texas won a national championship, was the only perfect score quarterback to that point. Quinn Ewers obviously set and redshirted a year at Ohio State before transferring back to Texas. Made some an money along the way. But now he's at Texas as well again. We have yet to see what he looks like on the field. But I will say that it looks like in the spring game, he has all the tools to take over the Big 12. I think the big thing as we look at Arch Manning and what Texas is doing is Arch Manning being the prodigal Manning heir to the manning dynasty of quarterbacks he's cooper's son so he's eli and peyton's nephew grandson of archie arch will be the quarterback that takes texas into the sec all projections from the manning family are that he'll redshirt his freshman season in 2023 that'll be yours junior season yours can then go pro and go make his money and went on because he clearly cares about the money that's why he graduated high school early to go to ohio state for a year and so on and so forth yours being gone then opens the door for a redshirt freshman Arch Manning to come in and start at Texas in the fall of 2024. The early side of when Texas is looking to join the SEC is the 2024, more likely the 2025 season. However the case shakes out, Arch Manning will be the starting quarterback, assuming all things go right, when Texas joins the SEC. That's a big, big deal here, because what we're seeing is everyone said, why did Texas join the SEC? Well, guys like Arch Manning are why, because guys like Arch Manning before would said, well, but I want to play against the best of the best in the Big 12, frankly, across the board, top to bottom, had not been the best of the best. We also see this SEC bias, where like the second-best team in the SEC gets invited to the college football playoff. And if you're at Texas, and you maybe end up being the second-best team in the Big 12 or whatever even, they haven't been that in a while, but say you become that, you're probably not going to get to go to the college football playoff. We've seen years in the past where the best team in the Big 12 didn't get to go to the college football playoff. And so I understand why this move makes sense, but it also pulls in these recruits that want to play in those games now can come to Texas because Texas will have a shot at playing in those games, right? Uh, The evidence, if it's not Arch himself, has been in the slew of recruits that have followed Arch. They had a number of four- and five-star recruits follow suit. Not just offensive skill guys. My buddy and I were texting... In Texas, I was anticipating getting some four- and five-star receivers that wanted to come get the ball from Arch, or a four- or five-star left tackle wanted to come block for Arch, or whatever, because they knew Arch's film would also serve as their film. But what's happening is they're also getting safeties and linebackers and nose tackles, guys that want to play with the best, because if you go back and look at what happened when Vince Young came to Texas, guys like Aaron Ross, Justin Blaylock, Brian Robeson, Michael Griffin, Frank Ocam, these guys all show up to Texas even on the defensive side of the ball to play with Vince Young because they know that Vince Young will run the offense in a way that will put them into big time games. The big 12 is also a very different place in the mid two thousands. And as Texas moves into the sec, I feel like the same vibe is kind of happening. You even had like in that five team, just go back for a second. Young Jamal Charles is a freshman when they win the title, right? Henry Melton, who ends up being an NFL defensive tackle wasn't college football running back on that team back when that happened, right? This is again, a, historically great college football team, but all the talent comes because they go, oh, that finch Jung guy is going to Texas. He's staying in state. We can stay in state. And Archmanic is not staying in state. He's going to the neighboring state, right? He's from Louisiana, goes to this little private school. In Louisiana, it's Dorn Newman. Really, really great academic school, I think we need to point out there. Like, obviously, they also have both of the older man, all three, I should say, of the older man, but two that went to the NFL, as well as Odell Beckham Jr. For all of his eccentricism, you think. He's obviously a very sharp guy and went to his door Newman himself. I look at that and look at, like, why does Arch Manning come to Texas? He's not staying in state. He could have gone in where he wanted. He's a, again, perfectly rated recruit. And it's the stuff that Texas does outside of football. And I don't mean that to say that it's cheap or dirty. The NIL has opened it up to be very much out in the open but the nil type of deal is going to help the texas of the world because it's in austin it's going to help the miamis of the world because it's in miami usc because it's in la and so on because there's just more nil opportunity in the big cities all the tech money and the kind of stuff that's flowing through austin booming austin austin's growing way too fast and so on and so forth the mcconaughey vibe or whatever That is also going to feed into college football money because now they can bluntly say, hey, Arch, come be in this ad. Hey, Arch, come represent this product. Hey, Arch. And he can do that in Texas in a way that you can't do in Tuscaloosa. Now, Tuscaloosa has a bunch of big things. The Alabama football brand is huge. I don't think Alabama or Ohio State or Michigan, I don't think those big college football brands are going to hurt in the same way. But, like, Mississippi State might. Right, like These ideas, these teams that don't have either end, that don't have the long-lasting brand of excellence or the city to come make money in, I think that's where you're going to see this really hurt teams. The second thing I'll say is that Arch cited the diversity of thought and stuff like that in Austin is another big plug. He's a private school kid in New Orleans, and I think that while some of us that grew up in Austin might chuckle at the idea of the diversity of Austin because there's all kinds of diversity issues in Austin and so on, I will look at it and say that, like, there are appealing things in Austin to an intellectual person that other, bluntly, SEC towns might not offer in the same way. That's not to say you can't find your pockets at schools that do different things and find pockets of football teams that also think the right way or whatever, but Austin as a whole will appeal to that in a different way than, I'm not going to throw any towns specifically under the bus, but then other towns of college football fandom would. I think Art, if you read the interviews and things like that, said that that was also appealing. So he's saying Austin, the Central Texas by all of that, is appealing to him as well as the idea of getting to wear born orange and bring Texas back or whatever. He said both sides of it, but I think it's worth pointing out that Texas really does continue to have that advantage and opening up the NIL door, now we're seeing it pay off. Now you're seeing Quinn yours and Arch Manning coming in to resurrect Texas. Sark is really running this thing and his offense is going to pull those guys in as well as far as like getting at the edge of recruiting. But getting them in on recruiting will be obviously carried out through what makes them different. Another big thing that happened while we were away (laughs) was the NBA draft. If you're following us on Twitter, we went ahead and graded very quickly every single one of the 58 draft picks. There will be more to come on the NBA draft throughout the week. You guys know me and my basketball allegiances. We'll talk more about that as we go on. So that's where we're going to leave this. Make sure you go check out the Twitter at Sports 2 on Twitter and see all the grades we handed out in the draft. At this point, you probably got to scroll back a little bit. But thank you for checking out. We have more to come on the NBA draft soon. <laughs> Obviously, one big piece of news that is not necessarily sports-related, but it's just humanity-related, was the Supreme Court decision in which they repealed Roe versus Wade, or at least left it to the states, which meant that 26 states repealed Roe versus Wade. Um, well... Obviously, if you followed me on Twitter, you've seen a number of my statements from that. What I will say is that it's worth pointing out in the sports landscape because the NBA, the WNBA, the Houston Dynamo and Dash all put out their statements. I think the Dynamo and Dash thing was interesting because it led to people questioning their own MLS teams, like, well, why aren't my Columbus team, why aren't they putting out anything? Why aren't the Austin FC putting out anything, et cetera? And the Houston Dynamo and Dash being in the city of Houston, the state of Texas, a state that was particularly impacted by the ruling obviously did feel strongly enough to put out their own statements, uh, obviously uplifting and honoring and trying to say that they care about the civil rights of women. Dash being a women's soccer organization, I think that makes the most sense. I would like to point out Joe Burrow's statement. If you listen to the show, you've heard Shock and I of go back way back in the day about how successful Joe Burrow would be as a quarterback, and I've eaten a little bit of crow on that one. Uh, I did say on Twitter, Joe Burrow continues to become someone that you continued to root for, uh, because Joe Burrow put out the statement very clearly, Quote, I'm not pro-murdering babies. I'm pro-Becky, dot, dot, dot. I'm pro-Susan, dot, dot, dot. I'm pro-Teresa, dot, dot. dot. I'm pro-Kathy, dot, dot, dot. And all these different women, end quote, I should say, all these different women that he talked about have had different issues where they had to make that horrible, difficult choice for themselves. And Joe Burrow is pointing out that side of the story that is, frankly, getting lost in a lot of ways. And so Joe Burrow took his fair share of heat for that because people want to say, oh, less politics and sports, and they don't want to talk about how politics has been in sports since the dawn of sports because sports were about who could and couldn't play at the very earlier stages. I digress. But people want to talk about Joe Burrow in all kinds of different ways, and he continues to just go out there and say the humane thing in support of people who need their civil rights supported with the platform he's been afforded as the starting quarterback of the AFC champion, Cincinnati Bengals. I think that's worth pointing out, and that's worth backing, and that's worth supporting. Even if I had my hard time in ranking him versus Vince Young and so on, and how much I liked Vince Young and his run in college football at the same time, I have to say that Joey Burrow doing these kinds of things and continue to do these kinds of things for various groups that he does not represent, by the way, he stood up for Black Lives Matter, He's not black. He stood up for this woman's rights issue. He's not a woman. He's doing these things for people that need the help and need the support from his platform, which is very, very large for a 25-year-old kid. Shout out to Joey Burrow. And somewhat sticking with pro football, but not like the football being played, another big storyline that's worth following is that Tony Busby has added the Houston Texans to the lawsuit filed against Deshaun Watson, uh, claiming that the Texans... Knew but failed to act. And I think the interesting thing here is that this could be where you start seeing the unraveling of the Texans' brass because to this point they could just claim ignorance and say, oh, we didn't know. We tried it, we sat him, we traded him, whatever. But this lawsuit and again, discovery could show if they got to that point that. They were doing things like giving him spaces for his masseuses on the road giving him high-end hotel rooms in houston for his masseuses uh, uh, enabling other ways that this would happen helping this happen in ways besides just paying him the money that he'd eventually pay for these services in which he would then sexually assault the women as they came in i think what's interesting and following here is not that the headline hit although it did hit in the last couple weeks the discovery will be interesting because if it's things like random night hotel rooms in the city of Houston, you got to kind of wonder, this isn't like he needs to isolate the night before a game. This isn't like, hey, we had to get everyone hotel rooms in the road. He just wanted a single. This is kind of weird behavior, even for an NFL team bending to a young quarterback. And so that's going to be one to follow as the discovery comes out. Even if it just started in the last two weeks, it might not come out for another couple. So make sure you're paying attention to Busby's name and the Houston Texans in the storylines as the summer continues to wind down. I don't know how big a national story this one was, but several people felt like making sure I knew that John Wall was released from the Houston Rockets or bought out by the Houston Rockets, I think is the more accurate phrase. And frankly, I, I'm happy for him. I think that it's worth pointing out that he gets a better situation, that he's going to get to go play for a team that's really competing as the Clippers get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George back full-time or as full-time as Kawhi Leonard ever is. They're going to play with John Wall now. I think they can stagger those games for the regular season in a way that makes sense, as well as then having John Wall on the roster come playoffs. I weirdly wrote in like March of 2021 they need to trade for John Wall. I think that it makes the most sense. I think they're a great fit for him because again I talked about this a little bit earlier with Dame Lillard and Jeremy Grant. But when you have two guys setting screen and rolls or dribble handoff or whatever, you want them to have different skill sets because the same defenders won't be covering the two of them. So John Wall attacking will be a John Wall type of defender, and then if he goes off a dribble handoff or a screen with Kawhi Leonard, if they switch that's in Kawhi Leonard's favor because the kind of guys that guarding John Wall are not the kind of guys guarding Kawhi Leonard. Whereas if you have two big perimeter defenders, you could kind of do that with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. They're the same type of offensive player. No matter what level you think of them at, they're the same type of player. And so adding John Wall that makes adds another diverse element. Think about how successful Reggie Jackson was at random times with that offense. Now you have John Wall, and I'm telling you, I know he hadn't played in a calendar year. John Wall can still play 30 to 35 minutes a night and 65-ish games a year, um, he can still do it, be ready to watch it. It's going to happen. And people will be like, oh, why did the Rockets play? The Rockets didn't play him because they wanted to tank and develop young talent and completely do the rebuild, and he didn't fit that timeline. Not because he couldn't play. And that's going to be very, very obvious here in a couple months. But I'm happy for John. I think Houston Rockets won that deal. Right, Their books are fine. And they got John Wall's leadership this season that he was on the team. The season he was with the team, I should say. And John Wall wins this deal. he got a year to get healthy. He's now in a winning situation. He gets to end his career with contender. I think that those are all good things. All right, so similar to our NBA draft coverage, we're going to touch on the Kyrie-Kevin Durant Brooklyn at debacle very shortly because we will be doing a belly-up basketball special whenever the news officially breaks. That said, we do need to touch on how much of that has happened in the last couple weeks, and we'll go ahead and break down kind of how it starts. It starts with Kyrie Irving deciding to be, quote, different by at first not signing, but then does sign, this opt-in for $37 million at the end of his deal. I think I heard it put very well the other day. I think it was Bomani Jones, it might've been Vinny Goodwill. Anyway, one of them was saying that, you know, players that opt into the last year, the player option of a deal, typically had something bad happen over the course of their deal, because if you continue to get better, and increase your value, you're signing just a whole new contract when that player option comes up. Instead, Kyrie Irving said, I'm going to test the waters. And test the waters, and the waters were a little murky. Didn't sound like there's a whole lot of people out there that wanted Kyrie Irving. So he opted into his player option with the Brooklyn Nets. And then very promptly, within 24, 48 hours whatever that was, Kevin Durant comes in and says, go straight to Josiah's office. Says, I am out of here. And I think that's a funny, funny visual. He sees that Kyrie Irving is opting into this deal and that he's going to be different and this and that. He sees Ben Simmons on Instagram posting in his story. His whole Instagram has since been deleted, but posting in Ben Simmons' story about he's back ready to work and get to the grind. And Kevin Rand doesn't just say, hey, this is kind of awkward. He goes straight to Joe Sy, the owner, which says, get me out of here. That's a super funny visual. We're going to break down whatever the trade happens as it happens. But I think it's worth pointing out before it happens that as it seems now, The options and places Durant wants to go are that he wants to go play with other All Stars. It sounds like at least two on a team with good management, whether that's James Jones and Phoenix. You can talk about you know, what Phoenix's owner, Sarver, but James Jones is James Jones. You can talk about, he's mentioned Boston. <laughs> Boston has obviously as good an ownership and group as it's had in a while. They fleece the Nets the first time around and continue to be in the Eastern Conference Finals and East Conference Finalists. He's mentioned Toronto and Masai Jiri, and I have my thoughts about Toronto and culture and how if they trade all their young pieces, much like they trade DeRozan Rosen for Kawhi, they trade all these young pieces to go in on title right now. What does it say about long-term culture? But I digress. That's neither here nor there. I also think it's worth pointing out that he's looking at Miami. And I'd say Miami has the best 15, 16-year run of any culture outside the Spurs of since 2000, right? And so he's looking at well-run orgs. Uh, There's talk about going back to Golden State to get another well-run org. Uh, I think that that's important. And frankly, I'm saying all that. Now he'll end up in, like, Charlotte or something crazy. But I think that it's worth pointing out that that seems to be important to him as he's leaving, Kyrie and the guys in the dust. More to come on the Billy at Basketball Show whenever the news officially drops. Make sure you follow those kinds of things, or myself on Twitter for updates, because that's where you find the latest on all of that. <laughs> Last but not least, we are going to briefly mention what's going on with Miles Bridges, most because I think that the the issue with Miles Bridges have been kind of odd, uh, odd because of how they're handled, I should say, not odd because of what he's done. What he's done has been truly. Atrocious, But the issue I have is that, like, there was the whole deal where he, like, had purple drink and a joint or whatever in his hand, and, like, people took that really seriously, like, oh my god, this guy's gonna harm his money, can you believe this is happening? I'm like, he's also a dude in his early 20s, in the off-season, and enjoys things like drugs and drinking, because he's a guy in his early 20s, and, like, that's not horribly uncommon, and as long as he's ready to go by the season, and he's not, like, an addict, and then have to go, like, seek help for those kinds of things, I think he's... Probably okay. That got handled really, really seriously. The thing that got handled really, really lightly, and that it was barely handled by some, is the much more serious issue, which is that he's been violent with his mother of his children. I forget if they're girlfriend or fiance. I don't think they're married at this point. Um, but he's been violent with her the point where she went to the hospital and has very, very serious lacerations and injuries from the violence. And she has video on. Her, it's a video taken of her talking to her son on a FaceTime, their son on a FaceTime, but the son is articulating exactly what happened, that daddy got in a fight with mommy, and like, those are truly atrocious things, and that's the thing that kind of got hinted at and hushed up, and we'll see what happens, and we're using words like alleged and things like that, and I guess legally, you have to use words like alleged, but dang, like, the seriousness we covered the dude drinking and smoking with is not being used in the thing that's far more serious and damning. He wasn't drinking and driving. He wasn't, frankly, doing hard drugs even. I mean, like, there was purple drink in his cup, so I just, how, what kind of purple drink you think it was, whatever, I guess, to find hard drugs. But he was doing something in the offseason that I think you see a lot of athletes do with the joint, and a lot of athletes do with the drinking and things like that. This does not have to be the serious thing. The serious thing is the thing that people aren't talking about now I can't imagine he's in the league come next year I don't think he I think he's good but not good enough to warrant like I don't think there's any athlete if you're asking me my personal opinion good enough to warrant doing any of this for but if you're asking me have sports demonstrated that certain guys will get a second chance after this I certainly don't think he's one of those guys either again that's not because I think anyone should I think they all should. Not, But sports have proven that some guys get a second chance, and I don't think Miles Bridges is good enough to be one of those guys that sports thinks gets a second chance. So we'll see where that goes. He's apparently talked about even just being a rapper after this is all over. He does have bars. He does have bars, I guess. And, you know, we'll see how his rap career goes if his image takes this kind of hit. But, man, that's the story, I think, of the Charlotte Hornets last couple weeks, that is getting kind of pushed away and not talked about as much as we talked about and joked on him for drinking and smoking. And that just doesn't feel right. <laughs> Friends, that's it for our Spark Notes edition of Catching Up in the Last Two Weeks. Whew. It took a lot out to talk about stuff for an hour. A lot of very different types of things, but a fun time nonetheless. A lot of stuff happened in sports the second half of June. Who would know? Uh, thank you all for tuning in the show and listening this far. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us at F underscore underscore sports. On Instagram, that's at F underscore underscore sports. And on Twitter, at FN sports. That's F-I-N-S-P-U-R-T-S. Number two, all one word on Twitter. On both of those social media handles, you can link tree. You can find all of our different sponsors or our merch store. We sell different t-shirts, sell different charities out each month. Make sure you go check each of those out. You can find me, my personal stuff, on Twitter at Painsworth512, P-A-I-N-S-W-R-T-H-512 on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to support the show for free, make sure you like, subscribe, download, rate, review, do all the wonderful things that help out the podcast. And whatever you do when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys.